Ramak, Tela, Lek. I know. This is We Talk Games Arcade Weekly, an arcade review show brought to you each Monday free of charge from your friends over at WeTalkGames.com and deck the halls right in their mouth. It's Holiday Haymakers. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, it's Xavier, go fuck yourself. I'm your host, Kyle Von Kubik, and I'm joined with a very special industry guest, Rachel Simone Wheel. Hi, nice now, to be here. Thank you very much for coming. We've tried a couple times to get together, but things got in the way, car fires and such, but I'm glad you're on the program, especially for December with our holiday haymakers. It's a lot of fun. Uh, if you're new to the show, all December long, we'll be talking about games in the haymaker and brawler genre. Rachel, for people who aren't familiar with your work, could you just give us maybe a brief summary of your robust resume? <laughs> no problem. Uh, so I kind of started out... Um, making indie games maybe about seven or eight years ago when I decided, uh, you know, I was a big NES collector. Mm -hmm. uh, I had about a hundred cards in my collection. I know that's just a portion of, of the whole library, but I was getting really into NES and I thought, man, these games are so cool. I wonder how they were made. And so I um, taught myself 6502 assembly and I started making my own NES games. That's a weird programming language and a weird way to get into indie gaming, but that was sort of my pathway. I made uh, about two 2011 made a sort of glitchy chiptune art game called Track and Field 2, which was at IndieCade back in 2012, I believe. And then from there, I got really involved in indie games and that whole community. And then right around that same time in 2012, I founded a video game museum. So, you know, like I said, I'd been collecting NES games. I started right. getting more into collector culture and I was like, all right, I've got enough games here it's time to turn this into a real deal archive. <laughs> sure. So the games that I actually focused on were games that were marketed to girls and young women. Defining what that means has always been an interesting challenge. But the reason I started it really was that, you know, getting into collector culture, going on forums, going on databases. I saw that there was a lot of information missing about Barbie games and Hello Kitty games. The, like, right. the databases were just incomplete. And when I dug into it, it was like, oh, those games are dumb games for girls. Nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> uh, I remember I a like, lot of, a, f a former guest of the show, Sean Baby, used to review a lot of uh, these games in his, uh, I guess he had his own page or his own section in EGM and it'd be at the back of the the magazine and it was always that. It was always, he would, he would review a Barbie game or a, a Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen game or something and it didn't get much past some humor and that was it. And there wasn't much digging. And this is why I was excited to have you on the show because yes, um, I don't think we've said the name of the museum, Femicom, yes. um, which is, is it www.femicom.org? Correct. 
Okay, so go there, check it out, because there's a lot of great information on there that Rachel has been curating. I wanted Rachel on the show because I feel that there is a parallel between what we do here at We Talk Games and what you do, which is that we are almost laser focused on one topic. And we've decided to be laser focused on this one topic because of the lack of information out there. When Wiggly and I decided to relaunch the program, not just as a video game podcast and not just as a quote unquote retro game podcast, but specifically as an arcade review show, we noticed that many games are just being forgotten. There's not a lot of information in there or there's a lot of bad information out there about these games. Or if you go on the Wikipedia's or or these uh, these other websites, there's maybe three sentences for an arcade game. You know, everyone talks about Turtles. Everyone talks about Simpsons. Not many people are talking about Wall Street and wiping. And the same goes for the games that you're discussing at Femicom. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but I know for a lot of the girl games, whether they were um, PC games or electronic handhelds, which those were really common for girl games because they were more inexpensive. You didn't have to have a whole game home console so your parents didn't have to you know throw down several hundred bucks so that you could play the one barbie game that came out for nes (laughs) Uh, so the handheld games and and stuff like that they're not really easily emulated and i think that's true of arcade games as well and part of the reason why those games don't have as much historical perspective is that it's just actually harder for historians to get at those games. Absolutely. We've run into this in the past, especially in the golden era of the arcade where a joystick was new, you know, where you'd see a control deck for a very obscure arcade game and there's eight different buttons to control a little ship and shoot around. So when somebody's trying to emulate it because they got a ROM and it's not mapped into their joypad correctly, I forget it, they just dump it. But there's still history there and there's still the foundation of what would become the games that everybody remembers, particularly those in the 90s. Now, we both went to the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo. We did. And ev- did evidently, meet. yeah, we did not meet for some reason, but you were at our table and you yeah. got a T-shirt. I did. Which is, <laughs> is very strange because, like, no joke, I've been trying to get you on the program for about a year. And if I knew you were there, we could have just banged this out there and, and been done with it. But I was just so surprised when you're like, yeah, I was there. I grabbed the T-shirt. I'm like, <laughs> uh, we're trying to be work safe. <laughs> anyway, know, I went over to the table and I was like, oh, yeah, like. I know we've been talking, we've been meaning to get together, and I think the people I was talking to had no idea who I was. And they were uh, like, right, just take a t-shirt and leave, would you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I apologize for that. Yeah, I was selling artwork right next door. Uh, but regardless, we had a panel at that show. And during that panel, we were talking about the history of the arcade and how it informed the home consoles and how that relationship between the home console market and the arcade market went back and forth influencing one another. And I'm under the opinion that the arcade or the video arcade specifically never had a gender specific mindset until home consoles. So what I didn't get to at the panel and I wanted to was discuss how Pong while being very influential because it was like the first smash hit of video game arcades, you know, Space War came out prior or Computer Space, whatever the variant may be. But Pong was this unique game where 
it was socially, and this is going to sound crazy to younger listeners, but it was socially acceptable for a man and a woman to play against each other in a public setting without there being some sort of mass hysteria or threatening violence toward one another or anything like that. And I say this because Pond came out in the late 70s. It was only a few years removed from Billie Jean King playing a tennis match against a man, the first woman running in the Boston Marathon. And these were big deals socially in America. And, you know, I think it's a discussion worth having, especially today, with a lot of um, different discourse uh, happening with gender roles and things like that. But these are discussions and these are things that have been hashed out for many decades. But it was surprising because here's this new medium and it was never an issue. It just sort of came onto the scene. And yeah, okay, a man and a woman can play this computer game thing together and, and at a bar. And that's cool. And I think that's interesting to note. And I think that's why. I have this opinion that the arcades didn't have gender specific boxes for the types of games that these arcade developers put out. Now, we all know the, the, the stories about Pac-Man, like, oh, it was more popular with women. Uh, yes. OK, so Pac-Man was more popular than women. There was uh, women. There was specific genres that were more popular with men versus women. But that didn't stop a man or a woman from playing Pac-Man versus playing Outrun versus playing Defender or Space Invaders. Space Invaders was my mother's favorite game growing up in the uh, 70s and 80s. So there you go. Space Shooter would definitely be in the male gender specific box if there were those boxes. But I don't believe in the golden era of the arcade there was until the home video game industry came onto the scene and then the crash And now what I've watched in your lectures on YouTube is you talk about how, and please, I invite the listeners to do the same. There's a lot of great discussion about this, this sort of idea of the pink cartridge. So there was a, or maybe I I should let you take over considering this is your specialty. Tell me about the, uh, the home video game console industry and the pink cartridge movement within that. Sure, sure. So actually, I want to back up and let's let's talk about the arcade for a second, because I think, you know, what you said about Pong is really interesting. And for me, games like Pong and Space Invaders and um, Pac-Man, I think, as well. One advantage that those games have for women, I think, in a time when there's not like video game culture, as we know it today, has not really like solidified. And a a gamer is not like a, a thing that, you know, you know, oh, gamer is like this and that, right? Kind of at the beginning. I think the aesthetics of those games being so neutral, I think was really nice. Like, I think when when you're a woman and you, and you go up to an arcade game in the 70s, if it's got, you know, sword fighting or it's about football or something, you can kind of take your understanding of, let's say, football, like women don't really play football, right? So a woman might come up to an arcade game like that and say, oh, this isn't for me, right? And you make these, like, split-second decisions about whether something is for you right. really, like, really quickly based on aesthetics, right? Like, I'm sure, like, people do it all the time. You, like, see a bottle of shampoo and you're like, pink, all right, not for me. Like, even though that's not really a good measure of whether the product's good or whether you'd like it. Uh, we make these split second decisions all the time. So I think for something like point. it's like you don't have that like, oh, this isn't for me. Let me back it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's what what is this thing? <laughs> back in the seventies. Now on the other hand, while I don't think that the games were gendered, there are a lot of things working against arcade games and and women's ability to play them. And I think one of them in the nineteen seventies is you have this sort of association of pinball and degeneracy mm. that kind of bleeds over into the arcades. And this idea that 
arcades were these sort of dangerous places. You have, you know, arcade machines typically in bars. So not a place where like women hang out en masse. Um, Certainly if they're already in the bar, I can see them playing it, but there are certain barriers. Just the idea of women being out at night. Yes. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're right. So there are these certain barriers. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting too. There was an interview with Miyamoto talking about, uh, Donkey Kong, and he was uh, saying, you know, when I created that game, of course, he was like, you know, five years old when he made that game, right? (laughs) But he said, it never occurred to me that women would play this game. Mm. Uh, It's not saying that he was making a game for men or or something like that, but he just said, like, literally, it did not occur to me that women would play this game. Uh, So I didn't have that in mind when I was making it. And so I think things like that are interesting. They're small things, but they help give sort of a robust picture of what arcade games and their creators were thinking about in the 70s and early 80s. And also what were some of those like small barriers that weren't really like, it's not like the arcade machine said, no ladies or no, no girls allowed. Right. Um, But sometimes just those like social factors uh, played a role. And you see a lot of misogyny in the way that the games are marketed in arcade flyers as early as Pong, because here's this fiberglass machine. And then they have a Vanna White looking model standing next to it. Like, look how beautiful it is. Uh, So I'm not pretending that back in the seventies or the early eighties, people were more progressive. I think it's interesting that this new medium was just sort of like, well, we don't know what this is. So, yeah, it's okay if a man and a woman play it together. You know? Yeah. Oh, of course, I couldn't help but thinking of the flyer for Gotcha. I'm sure you've seen that one. Oh, the worst. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, we've lambasted Nolan Bushnell enough on the program. <laughs> uh, so what so, about pink cartridges? What, yeah, so yeah. The home video game industry develops, happens. People are playing arcade games at home, and now they're playing other experiences at home that you're not getting in the arcade. And then, of course, we all know about the crash that happened. Out of that crash came Nintendo, but also came this pink cartridge movement. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it would be probably more accurate to say pink games, but in particular, not cartridges so much as CD-ROMs. One of the things I kind of alluded to before about one of the difficulties with making games for girls in the early console era, so let's say NES, Sega Genesis, is that you had to have this console that cost several hundred dollars and the games were expensive. And there's a sort of economy that happens when you get the console and a bunch of games, right? Because it sort of offsets that initial investment of getting the console. So it was kind of a hard sell to say like, oh, girls are definitely going to buy this several hundred dollar console And then the games library wasn't really broad enough. If you think about parents buying this, uh, oh, there's the one Barbie game or the one, you know, Little Mermaid game. And very low return of investment there. Yeah. 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 So I think what really turned that around was in the mid 1990s when home computers became more affordable, they were more likely to be in the home. So, you know, there was kind of a higher penetration of computers and they weren't necessarily being purchased for children, but the children would use them, right? Those computers would be shared. And the other big innovation was the addition of the CD-ROM drive. 
So now we've got games that can be produced a lot more inexpensively because the medium is a lot cheaper to produce. Cartridge is incredibly expensive to produce compared to a CD-ROM, which is a couple cents. And I think this combination of, oh, wow, there's a lot of computers out there and there's this CD-ROM technology, we see the sort of advent of girl games coming to CD-ROM and coming to the computer. So things like Barbie Fashion Designer, which was an incredible smash hit. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know about it, but one of the best-selling titles of the year that it came out just completely blew away everyone's expectations and started this sort of avalanche of girly CD-ROM adventure games and um it's like one of those low budget movies that were make back 500 percent of what was put into production totally yep, yeah yeah made on a small budget and then just kind of blew everyone away so yeah that was really the start of the girls game movement in the 1990s that went on i think for several years and then interestingly you know i think with the move to disc-based consoles, then you might think, oh, well, this sort of carries over, right? So now we can have girly games on consoles. And of course, there were some series like uh, Mary-Kate Nashley that did make it to consoles and some Barbie games as well that made it to consoles and still still do. But there's a lot of hesitation because at that point, the consoles, like you said, after the crash, you know, the consoles really turned to marketing like a toy, yes. uh, going after that boy market, the way that mm-hmm. toys are sort of gender segmented. Um, and then the consoles sort of grew up with those boys and started targeting, you know, young men. They didn't want to take a chance. It was a difficult sell to say, hey, can you kind of disrupt your cool brand, Sony PlayStation or, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Xbox? Can you can, let's do some Barbie stuff? I think that was a difficult sell for the console makers at that point. Yeah. And and I think that in the 90s, this informed the arcades as well, because now there were experiences at home that were not replicated in the arcade, specifically like that of role playing games or strategy games. Some companies attempted things that would take elements from those type of genres for arcade games. Mainly in the 90s, the arcades were steering wheel racing games and fighting games. And the reason why is because pretty much your platformers, your puzzle games, your RPGs are all being played at home. And because the arcades kind of fell into these two different genres of the cockpit flight sim or the cockpit racer or the, the six player brawler or the, 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 the fighting game, it became very gender specific in the arcade and the, I guess you'd call it the silver age in the nineties uh, with the, you know, Neo Geo and the different games that came out at that time. Speaking of the nineties, let's get to the game we're talking about this week. It's pretty oh, yeah. soldier. Yeah. It's pretty soldier sailor moon, 1995 by band presto. Why are we talking about this game? We're talking about this game because Rachel gave me a Herculean task of finding a game that involves romance and, or, fortune telling right and or astrology was the other you gave me three prereqs for this uh game and uh i think i touched on two of them Uh, i got the astrology happening because we're talking about uh, the sailor scouts and that's mars venus uranus uh jupiter you know we got celestial things happening a romance definitely i think everyone is familiar with sailor moon but if they're not do you want to give a brief summary of what Sailor Moon's all about? 
Sure. Sailor Moon started as a Japanese comic and was turned in the early 1990s, became an anime. Uh, so it's a uh, sort of an action adventure anime about regular old school girls who turn into superheroes and save the world. I think it was a, a pretty iconic anime in that it, it was one of the early ones to kind of make a mainstream splash in the U.S. Yes. I remember waking up at six o'clock in the morning to watch yeah. this on, I believe, UPN before yeah. school. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely was on super early in the morning, right before school. Back and when news organizations were, the new craze is Japanimation. <laughs> Another thing that's kind of interesting about it is there's sort of an ensemble cast of fighters. They're all high school age girls. Yes. Something that really drew me to it is that well, there's just a, a show with like a lot of girls that all have different personalities um, yes. instead of like the one sort of like, oh, there's the one girl in the group and she's like the emotional one. Or now what I think it is, is she's the tough one because, you know, we're trying to combat stereotypes. Right. <laughs> um, and so I think just like having a show, I was probably in, I want to say fifth fourth grade when that show was actually brought over to the u.s or when i remember seeing it on yeah it sounds like we're about the same age then and uh i was just like wow there's like different girls and like this is the smart one and this is (laughs) this is the clumsy one and this is the flirtatious one and it was kind of cool just to see a sort of diversity of characters on a cartoon show It's, it's a great show very funny i liked the show as a kid um I didn't even think twice about watching a show with all of these young girls being represented because I was just into anime, but not realizing I was into anime. I grew up with watching Tobor the Eighth Man and uh, Gigantor and Speed Racer. So I liked that style of um, animation. I just didn't know it was from Japan. And I don't believe at the time of uh, Sailor Moon coming over, I didn't realize, you know, that that was something that was from Japan either. But it was I was so used to the the aesthetic of that type of show with the silly dubbing and the the weirdness of these cultural things that I didn't understand. But they read goofy to me and funny. You know, they were just no different than the cheap animation you'd find with Hanna-Barbera. Only they were fighting aliens, which was much cooler than, um, you know, Huckleberry Town singing on with his banjo so yeah so this game came out in 1995 it is a of course a brawler because it's holiday haymakers pretty much went over the plot the, the exception of they're fighting this big baddie i what, what was her name queen, queen barrel barrel yeah and she'd occasionally send down people to earth to mess things up and along the way there, there'd be an a and b plot so the a plot would be serena which is sailor moon dealing with her high school life and then the uh, the B plot would be her defeating evil and running into Tuxedo Mask. And I really think everyone is real familiar with Sailor Moon. I, I don't think we have to dig too much deeper than past that. But the plot of this game, it's there. They're all there. The sailors are there. I don't really know what's happening because even in the English ROM, they're speaking Japanese. There is some voiceover. But all the characters are named after their Japanese counterparts, some of which I'm not familiar with. Like, I recognize the bosses, but one of them I thought was called Malachite, and he's not called that in this game. Mm. Did you run into any of that as well? I know Queen Beryl, I think, was called that uh, in the English version as well. 
Yeah, um, I'll be honest, I did not cross-check all of the, the names of the enemies, but I did recognize a bunch of them. And it's possible, too, there were quite a few seasons of Sailor Moon that did not make it to the U.S. Right. So I definitely recognized, I would say, a majority of the main bosses or just some of the enemies actually were taken from episodes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, visually, I, there was a lot of recognition for me. It was just when I was reading the names they were giving, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I don't remember that. But again, we're dealing with English dubs. And again, this is a time where you get up at six o'clock in the morning, put on picks and watch the same season of Dragon Ball over and over <laughs> and over again. When are they going to get to Namek? It doesn't matter. We only bought this first season. They're going to go back. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was a unique time. So my depth and I didn't watch any episodes for the show because what we like to do on, on this program is stay away from reading other people's opinions on the game. Stay away from watching playthroughs or reviews or digging too deep. We want to represent the game as it is with the knowledge that we have. I'm familiar with Sailor Moon. I figured you'd be the same. And I felt that the game fit the requirements. So let's talk about the game mechanics. It's walking from left to right punching things in the face. Sadly, it's not much more than that. You occasionally jump, and in times of desperation, you can hit jump and punch for a desperation attack, which means you lose a little bit of health if you land the hit on the enemy. You can also collect five crystals, up to five crystals, for a special attack. Move when you said desperation attack, are you talking about the spinning attack? Yes. So yeah. um, I, I classify any attack... We've talked about a lot of brawlers on the show. Any attack that involves you losing health to land a punch, I call a desperation attack because you don't want to just constantly hammer on that and deplete your health. You want to use that in moments where it makes sense so you're surrounded by lots of enemies. That happens often in this game. Yep, I think you covered all the bases. Punching, jumping, uh, oh, throwing. You can throw enemies. You can, that's right. You can throw enemies by walking towards them. Um, so if they're to the left of you, if you push up against them, you'll get them in a grab, and then you can opt to you know, jockey them left or right with a throw. Making mechanics for this game, I think... You know, everyone can kind of imagine where we're going with this, it being Holiday Haymakers. But I'm going to touch on these two specifically because I think these two games that came out before it show examples of how this game could have been better. And we can disagree as far as whether the game is good or not. I was I was underwhelmed by this game. I was really hoping for a very robust fighting system. I was hoping for unique characters. And I was disappointed after I was playing. It's not a bad game. I'm jumping ahead. I'm not burying the lead at all on this. I don't know why I expected that. Because to me, after I played this, I was like, well, you know, at the end of the day, was The Simpsons much better than this? Was Turtles much better than this? And the answer is yes, but for very small incremental reasons. Let's get into the making mechanics. For me, uh, two games that hit some notes for me with Pretty Soldier Sailor Moon were Double Dragon 1987 by Technos and Golden Axe 1989 by Sega. Double Dragon, obviously, is the grandfather of most brawler games, so that makes sense moving left to right. Here's the difference. In Double Dragon, you could pick up objects and use them against enemies. You don't do that in this game. This game came out in 1995. 
Why are we not doing that? Uh, Golden Axe, the reason I picked this as one of my make mechanics is because in Sailor Moon, you collect crystals. In Golden Axe, you collect vials of magic. You collect more vials of magic. When you use that screen-clearing bomb or that special attack, it does more damage. That was the one thing I did appreciate in Sailor Moon, was that there were these incremental, better-looking, flashier special moves each time you got up to that four or five count with your crystals. And you'd be treated to this very beautiful and big, almost like a, a laser disc game or a, you know full motion video game animation cell of the sailor that you're using, whether it be Mars or Venus, Jupiter or Moon, uh, coming onto the screen, saying something in a voiceover, and you could see them either do like a kick or do a massive damage to all these enemies on the screen. I did like that. Did this game remind you of any other games you played? And it doesn't have to be arcade games. It could be uh, console games as well. Sure, sure. So actually, I also got the Golden Axe vibes. Maybe I didn't know why, but maybe the reason you said. Now, is it true in Golden Axe when you use your magic, do the vials spin around the characters yes. the way they do in the Sailor Moon game as well? right that is correct yes so you use this power and suddenly you know if you have three crystals and these three crystals are sort of orbiting your character before the animation happens and so yeah i was i was getting the uh, golden axe vibes for sure i wish the music had been as good as golden axe we can oh, talk man. about music later we'll, but we'll get up to that yeah <laughs> um you might think this is funny but the other game that i was reminded of when i was playing this well actually a few more not this game specifically, but Sailor Moon Brawlers that were actually released for Super Famicom and mm -hmm. I believe maybe Sega Genesis as well. So, of course, I was reminded of their side-scrolling brawlers. They're not ports, they're remakes, essentially. Yes. Yeah. I was definitely reminded of uh, some of those games, which fall more in, like, Turtles category for me, or yeah. Turtles territory in terms of how they play in the Sailor Moon arcade game. When you use your magic power, it essentially damages everyone on screen, and they all the enemies turn this like golden, sparkly color, mm -hmm. and then they all sort of like fall down at the same time. And for whatever reason, I was highly reminded of uh, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, when you oh, sort of like right. use your magic, and everyone just becomes like sparkly and yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great pull. I didn't <laughs> think of that, but that's a great pull. Much like Moonwalker, I think the strongest attribute to this game, and I think you'll agree, is the art direction, uh, specifically the graphical sprites, because the backgrounds, again, for 1995, there's not a lot going on back there. They look nice, but they're very static. There's not a lot of parallax scrolling happening. I think only two stage have any sort of play with perspective. Again, underwhelmed, but the sprite work of the characters from the show look really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sprites are great, the animation. The first thing I noticed on this game, hands down, was how many frames are in this walking animation? Without like, a, Yeah, I had the same feeling. <laughs> yeah, just like trying to parse it out. Like, okay, how many... I would say, like, I could have gone for a little more animation of the head. I would have liked to have seen the characters blinking or sort of, like, flinching given how detailed the bodies were, right? Like, yeah. you felt like you saw the muscles in Sailor Moon's legs. Right. Sort the, of like the sway of the arms and, and, and yes. the movement of the legs. I'm like, there's extra frames here. Why do they spend yeah. so much time on the walking animation? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, actually, the flying kick animations are, are quite nice, and I, I think all of the, the fighting animations are great. And it kind of related to the beautiful art in this game is like the enemy designs are awesome. You know, it was something that was so great about the anime was that, especially in the early seasons, a lot of the early seasons of Sailor Moon are like, oh, Sailor Moon's got to fight another weird enemy. Uh, and it's, so they were like constantly coming up with enemies, like a different enemy that Sailor Moon could fight every episode. And the enemies were super creative and were drawn and created with a lot of care. And they were yeah. also really wacky, right? Like, oh, there's like an enemy that's like a running shoe or a tennis racket or a yep. tiger. But they were just beautiful and interesting and weird. And I think that quality of the anime really translated nicely to the arcade game. Do you remember the mannequin sort of enemies? Oh, sure. That yeah. would like, they take their heads off and... Those are that's, so cool. And that's a point of disappointment for me. So they take their heads off and they'll throw it at you. And I do remember those enemies from the show. And then the heads on the ground. Can't tell you how much time I spent trying to pick that head up off the ground thinking I could throw it. You can't throw it. And that's why I'm saying like Golden Axe and uh, Double Dragon did it better years earlier because you could ride on that weird... I don't know what that thing was in Golden Axe that you could ride on. There, there was the, these like monsters that had a beak and a tail that you could whip guys with. And then in Double Dragon, you could pick up a pipe and uh, bean somebody in the head. You couldn't do that in this game. And I don't understand for 1995, why? Band Presto wasn't a bad developer. They were more than capable of doing it. Maybe they spent too much money on the license. I don't know. But it's all the frames, all the frames. All the frames. <laughs> <laughs> We blow all the money on frames. <laughs> that was it. Just to appreciate the artwork alone, this game is worth a playthrough. What you might want to do while playing through is listen to anything else. Because there are points in this game where it sounded like six-year-old Kyle is at PC Richards noodling around on a Casio keyboard. It's bad. It's really bad. It's really bad. It's obviously got the Sailor Moon theme. But it's not a good rendition of the theme. And again, when when you have this great artwork and you have this um, screen-filling animation of the scouts going into their special attack mode, how do you how do you just pass on the music altogether? And not to mention, they got the original voice actors from the anime to do the you know when when a special move happens. Uh, the right. scout will, will say something. She'll talk about the move that she's doing or wish you good luck or something like that. They right. use the original. They actually, not even reusing audio from the show, they they hired the original voice actors and had them say the lines for yeah, the, the, the game. The voiceover so, was very clean. Somebody thought about audio. But yeah, the music, in some cases, it felt like a mistake, like something wrong happened with, <laughs> with the file. It felt right. like, um, I don't know, back in the early days of like 90s emulation when they hadn't quite figured everything out. And I don't know if you were doing emulation stuff in the 90s, but you'd see mm -hmm. some, oh, you know, the, there's something corrupt with this. The audio is not working or right. this emulator doesn't have support for this uh, certain channel. It was that bad. It was bad. Yeah, My wife was in the office with me while I was playing uh, the game and she was grading papers. And she at one point, I think it was stage three. She's like, what? It, that's not even a melody. And I go, yeah, I think the music got bored with the game like I am right now. Because <laughs> like, admittedly, the game is very repetitive and a lot of brawlers are. And that's why talking about brawlers is so difficult because 
the genre has a lot of games in it, but a lot of games are very by the numbers. And sadly, this game is by the numbers. And even though Turtles and Simpsons are not my favorite brawlers, I know a lot, a lot of people love them for nostalgia and for the fan service they do. In my opinion, those games have elements in there that make them better than this game, which again, I'm a fan of Sailor Moon. You know, not I'm not a super fan. I don't have any of the manga. I don't have toys or anything. But I remember growing up with this cartoon, liking this cartoon. I was expecting a lot out of this. I believe eight total baddies cycled through the game over and over and over again with, you know, palette swaps, obviously. And I never felt like, and maybe you have a different opinion on this, but I never felt like by switching to Mars or Venus or Jupiter, I, I didn't feel any difference between switching to those characters. I always felt like I was, they, you know, the animation might've been a little different, but they, they, it didn't feel like one was a speed and maybe they were. And I just, they weren't yeah, enough. for me that, Cause I definitely feel like Mercury is my girl and uh, I feel like she's faster and I could not tell if it was me. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fighting game person. So it, it could be if I were more like, attuned to what a faster character feels like I might have noticed right away but I felt like I just played way better with Mercury I had a similar experience but with Jupiter because Jupiter is my girl <laughs> and uh, I was like nah you just like Jupiter um, there probably is but it's probably such a small increment from one another that it's not noticeable enough for me yeah. normally in a, fight, in a good brawler there's a heavy move slow hits hard there's mm-hmm. a speed light hits moves fast to me they all kind of felt the same they looked different their animations were a little different their special attacks were different but even with their special attacks you know if i had one crystal with mars it was no different than having one crystal with venus or moon and i really felt like uh, sailor moon should have been all around or the strongest character because it makes more sense canonically for her to finish the game and beat queen barrel at the end and i'm at the last battle i'm cycling through to see like am i doing more damage to the queen if i'm at if i'm moon or if i'm jupiter no there was just the same hits and i I, again maybe i'm wanting too much maybe my expectations were too high but i would have really liked to feel more powerful at the final stage than i did in the first stage and i didn't feel like there was that progression in the game yeah like maybe your magic capacity increases over time or something, right? That would have been great. Yeah, that, that would so be good. I actually wanted to go back to something you said about, you know, you, you were comparing this um, arcade game to other arcade games based on pre-existing IP like Turtles and, and yeah. Simpsons. And I think, you know, that's such an important point, really, because um, when you think about how few video games are out there that, well, actually, no, let me back up. If you think about how few media franchises that have a large, let's say, following of girls and women Mm -hmm. that are also incredibly deep and have a deep fan base, like have their own Wikia pages, have their own lore, have their own like canon and people arguing about what's canon. Right. You know, I think a lot of those IPs that are really rich tend not to overlap as much with media that's targeted to girls and women. And so I felt as a woman who's also like really super into, you know, having the fights about canon and and getting like nerdy about the lore. Like that's something that's really cool and unique about Sailor Moon is that you can even meet a girl at a bar and, uh, you know, 
it's just oh you watched Sailor Moon 2 oh what did you think about season 3 and then oh that that totally went against the whole uh, continuity of the plot <laughs> and there's so few opportunities to do that with media that are sort of popular with women and so I think the fact that when you play the Sailor Moon arcade game and you see oh my gosh this Crown Arcade that's, yeah. that's a show right or like oh this enemy I remember that from this this one episode that's so powerful and I think especially for a female player where the media that are sort of like marketed to us I'm putting that in air quotes mm-hmm. um don't have that fan service or fan reference things those experiences don't happen for us as much and so I think when they do they're like extra special Um, I think something like Star Wars or, you know, a lot of IPs that have their own like universes and games, those things of cross-referencing across media are really common, but not so much for girls media. So I think it's extra special when it happens in Sailor Moon to be like, oh, look, there's like the guy that works at the arcade and he's passed out. (laughs) (laughs) That arcade scene that you keep referencing too is probably the biggest highlight playing through this game because it changed up the repetitive nature a little bit where the big baddie was created at the beginning of the stage and you followed this green cat monster right. from Game Center Crown all the way toward the end where you had that final battle with him. And you go through a convenience store, which is great, yes. of a great backdrop as well. Yeah. And this is where I'd like to see, look, I get it. And I like all of the fan service it did do with having Tuxedo Mask interrupt the fight, with having candy and ice cream be the health items in the game, because what does Serena love? Sweets. Those things are very cool. And I'm glad that we're there. And I'm glad that this game does exist for women who are fans of Sailor Moon. I just wish I feel like they deserved better. Like, Let me ask you a question. Did you play any of the Sailor Moon console games? I have not. Let me tell you, there are a ton of Sailor Moon, mostly Super Famicom games, just because that was sort of the right era for the show. Right. And there are quite a few that are incredible games. And in particular, the Sailor Moon RPG for Super Famicom is hands down my favorite RPG of all time. And possibly, you know, I'd say definitely in my my top five games. Is Um, there an English patch for it? Yes, there is. Then I'm in. (laughs) Yes, there is. We will reconvene about that game later. (laughs) I'll play it. But I could talk about that game. Uh, Yeah, please, because I could talk about that game for hours. But I think one thing that it it does really well, and kind of to your point of where you saw disappointments in the arcade game, and and I agree too, I'm not going to say the game is uh, perfect by any stretch. But you compare that then to Sailor Moon RPG um, called, uh, it's called Sailor Moon Another Story. And that game, incredibly deep into the lore of Sailor Moon, amazing music, incredible music. You know, you can tell that the composers really understood how to make good Super Famicom music, if that makes sense. (laughs) Mm, It's very good and and takes advantage of the hardware in really nice and interesting ways. Um, Beautiful graphics, you know, considering the limitation, you know, obviously a a Super Famicom RPG is going to have small sprites and, uh, you know, it's it's top down. I'd say like pretty similar to Chrono Trigger or um, Link to the Past. (laughs) <laughs> Secret of Mana, maybe. Um, incredible! You pl- you have actually all ten scouts. That okay, you that's that's fantastic. I realize that this arcade game 
was probably just like the first season, right, of Sailor Moon. So like the Neptune and Uranus are not there. Yeah. Um, so I was a little disappointed by that, but I understood that like, ah, you know, the, they probably weren't even up to that when the, the game came out. So please continue. So all 10 scouts. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you could actually um, you can split the party in, in ways of your choosing. Right. So, you can oh. Say like, oh, so, you know, you have this there's one part in the game. I don't think it's a spoiler, but you have to like go on two different missions and you have to split up your 10 person party into f- two five person parties. And you have to do one story arc with one set of five and another story arc with another set of five. So things like that where they're like the mechanics are amazing. The music is amazing. Like they can't they were capable of making an amazing Sailor Moon game. The arcade version is not it. I would hate for that to be someone's only introduction to Sailor Moon games, because I would say in my ranking of Sailor Moon games, the arcade one is actually pretty low, even though the the graphics are amazing. Mm. There were a ton of puzzle games that were really good. So if you played this and you're like, oh, how disappointing that they can't make a good Sailor Moon game, definitely check out the Super Famicom catalog because it's legitimately amazing. I will definitely check out the RPG. That sounds interesting to me. And winter is coming, so <laughs> staying indoors and playing a uh, you know a deep dive Japanese RPG sounds nice. I think we touched on everything we liked. Just like some of the things that uh, you know, I wish were improved. Those elements with Tuxedo Mask. Not that I needed a male character to play as. I thought we were going to get a payoff from Tuxedo Mask. He interrupts a couple battles, and that's it. If he's not going to be a part of the special attack and he's only going to interrupt a few battles and there's not going to be a big payoff at the end where, you know, him and Serena get together, like you, you see them at least meet up or have some sort of dialogue. I really wish he were in the game more, whether that be as a playable character or more canonically with the story. The game itself kind of lacks a story. I you wish know, there was an ending. <laughs> there was no ending. I know you, you defeat Queen Barrel. It's like credits. I'm like, are you kidding me? If I, 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 I legitimately just spent like $500 to beat this game. <laughs> and that was it. You got nothing, which, again, very surprising because there were these cinematic moments where, you know, here's the hands of Queen Beryl doing, you know, spooky stuff around a crystal ball. And here's Queen Beryl given out to, again, I, I could have swore the guy's name was Malachite and the other one about, you got to go down there and take care of her and stuff like that. And then at the end, Nothing. Nothing happens. It's the end. I, I also have to say, I just love that you brought up the cutscene with Queen Barrel's hands uh, going over the crystal ball because <laughs> I actually I just really laughed out loud when that happened in the arcade game. So it's, I think it's a cutscene after like the second boss, maybe or the first right. boss, where it's like this obscenely long cutscene. Yes, Barrel's hands just like rubbing a crystal ball for what seems like an eternity. <laughs> and what's hilarious <laughs> is that they did the same. Thing in the anime, they would show like Queen Beryl's hands over the crystal ball because maybe they didn't know what the script was going to be or they needed to like work in more plot. It was yeah. always like, can we just show the Queen Beryl with her hands over the crystal ball for like three minutes while we explain the entire plot of this episode? Which <laughs> <laughs> is like unfettered plot exposition. And but in the game, there's no, the there's nothing talking about it. Yeah, well, the, you, so you see this in the game, but there's no voiceover or anything happening. And I was like, I was hitting the volume key because I'm like, am I miss, missing something? Fan service of like, remember those really long Queen Barrel hands? <laughs> They're back. 
to my credit, I think I did hit now, now that you said the uh, the crystal ball. I, I think I hit on all three of your requirements for this game. I got I got the fortune telling in there. Not that she was a fortune teller, um, but with the crystal ball is close enough. I say commendable, commendable. Right, I tried. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I actually, when we were first talking and you're like, oh, what, what's your favorite kind of arcade games? Definitely hands down. Every time I go to an arcade, I'm looking for the fortune teller. I'm looking for the horoscope game, the thing where you put your palm on it or, uh, you know, you get a little card with your fortune on it. There's another example of a, a genre that is so under explored by historians because you can't emulate it, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And we, you know what, we try... I love the idea of talking about this, and I talked to uh, the other host of the show, Wiggly, about this, and we both love the idea of talking about fortune-telling machines and, like, EM machines that did this without the, uh, give me your quarters, I love quarters, you you know, which... (laughs) crystal ball thing i'm referencing there uh-huh. but even earlier than that with the what was it called zoltar or what, the fortune teller machine in big that everyone remembers like we would love to do a d- deep dive into that at our panel at the long island retro gaming expo wheatley was trying to talk about some of these em machines with the sh- you know how these genres were prevalent in the electrical mechanical arcade with flight simulation with shooting with um you know, skill-based games. Mm-hmm. The people who are in the audience, I think some had pillows or nooses for themselves. They just like, I think we're so far removed from those games that sometimes, and it depends on the audience. For me and Wiggly and you evidently, we're very interested in that. So please, if you are interested in hearing a show about that, reach out to us. We're on Twitter at We Talk Games, Facebook, Facebook.com slash We Talk Games, Reddit, r slash We Talk Games. Let us know because I would love to cut that episode. It's just, we got real scared when we were talking about em machines and people were asleep you know and i know you've actually made a few fortune telling games right for the nes i have so um one for the nes which was electronic sweet and fun fortune teller you can pick up the rom on my itch.io page uh it's $1.99 which is a great deal uh, for an nes era game uh yeah it's you put in your name and birthday and your blood type if you know it and you get back a horoscope love i love that blood types in there because that was it's (laughs) such a thing in japan right exactly um and there's also a love compatibility mode which if you ever went to lovecalculator.com back in the 90s is definitely some inspiration there you put in your name and your crush's name and get a compatibility score um i also worked on a game that came out for a browser and uh iphone and android i think it's actually been pulled from iphone but um i collaborated with natalie lawhead who is an absolutely amazing indie game developer and we made a game called monkey fortune tell which uh (laughs) which is a a divination game in which you um take you know barrel of monkeys the toy you take a barrel of monkeys and you cast them into a pentagram (laughs) wow this sounds awesome and uh there's there's a rotoscoped like a girl in a monkey suit it's it's a really uh trippy amazing fun game uh so monkey fortune tell if you want to look that up you can play it for free in the browser and i've been working on different horoscope and fortune telling experiments with um hardware i do a lot of hardware hacking i'm working on one with a payphone right now which i'm really excited about so yeah i think fortune telling has been a a constant theme for me and i think it's there's something that i really love about this idea of you know 
when we go to an arcade or we, we use a computer, we, we're sort of like, oh, the computer's smart, you know, like the, the computer knows everything and we can kind of suspend our uh, disbelief for a moment and believe that the computer can really tell us what's going to happen in the future or this arcade machine, it's lighting up and it's moving in ways that I don't understand. And there's something really special about like combining electronic technology and the sort of like magic of it all and the magic of the arcade and the boardwalk and combining that with uh, fortune telling, especially like sort of love horoscopes and things like that. This idea of, you know, bringing people together through that sort of magical feeling. I know when I go to arcades or boardwalks and see the old electromechanical games, feeling that sort of magic, it's not really like anything else. And so I, I think that's something that I've always been drawn to. I think it's a great discussion. I hope you've uh, enjoyed your time on the show because we'd love to have you back on to do either another review or a deep dive on, on this topic. Or uh, Sailor Moon RPG. You know, you play it, uh, you play it yes. over the next couple months and then you decide you really need a whole episode dedicated to it. <laughs> I've, I've actually played through it several times and it's incredibly long. It's Chrono Trigger long. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. down for it, though. Please just remind the listeners where they can find you and where they can find Femicom and anything else you're working on. Sure, absolutely. So Femicom.org, F-E-M-I-C-O-M.org is uh, where you can read up all about my video game archive, cataloging femininity and girly culture in 20th century video games. I'm on Twitter. My handle is PartyTimeHXLNT. <laughs> Party time, yes. excellent. And my personal website is nobadmemories.com. I usually blog about gaming and what I'm up to and technology. Um, I'm a software developer by trade, so sometimes I talk about JavaScript and things like that. I think what you're doing is awesome and interesting. And we always have liked the idea as not all video games are art, but art can be video games. Right. And uh, you're definitely creating art that... I'm interested in. It's been super fun. Um, cool. You can probably tell I really like talking about video games. Yeah. It's great to have And them. next time you're in Garden City, New York, and there's a We Talk Games table, if anyone pretends to not know who you are, <laughs> demand to speak to Kyle. And I'll I, be like, I, do you know who I am on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, just take this T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Be sure to check in next week for more Holiday Haymakers. Holy shit, you finally found my lyrics. Wait a minute. This for the Monster Mash. I could have used this two months ago. That's okay. Let's get this album wrapped up. Here I go. Melokmiki Mama is the thing to say. A bright Hawaiian Christmas day. Honolulu, that's the island greeting that we sent you. Everybody come when you see the tree. If we know the Christmas all the time. Even when you call a kitty on the hutty way. So hey, Seppo, Christmas to you. From the land of trees, it's way. Take it, boys. Oh, yeah.
wife of a theme song to a wife of a home. The wife of a theme song to a wife of a home. Yes, McGarry's hair is perfect. Yes, Dano Brooks is suspect. A theme song to a wife of a home. Malak Milky Mamas is the place to be on the dark and grimy snow. I'm tired. Malakalik Obama is a wise idea With all the times you go around When the palm trees go and fade away Then you'll see my butt were happy days Hey, happy days, Fonzie, hey, I'm tired uh, Have yourself a Christmas, a very merry Christmas A merry stinky Christmas to you Yeah!